It's been so long. So good to see you again. Well, not good, really. Uh-uh. Don't say anything. Mommy knows. You thought you could just walk right in here, didn't you? As if nothing ever happened. What a joke. Well, they're all dead. All of them. And you did that. Tried to live knowing that. For whatever brief time you're still But hey, that's just a theory, right? A theory. A theory. A theory. Uh Welcome to Game Theory, the show that's been popular for 11 years but still hasn't landed a movie deal. Don't know why I felt like mentioning it here. On a completely unrelated note, a few weeks ago we finally saw the release of Poppy Playtime Chapter 2, Flying a Web. And this thing was longer than a tech demo, so hey, big wins over Part 1. But no, the team wasn't content to stop there. Poppy Playtime's newest chapter went above and beyond, requiring players to master not just one, but Two different gameplay styles. Whack-a-mole and Simon Says. Blue! Yellow! We're ah, violent! Ah! Every game is required to have a Simon Says segment for some reason. I'm of course being facetious about the whole thing. This new chapter actually offered a lot of awesome stuff. Cool puzzles, thrilling chases, and an oversized plush toy failing to pull a lever. <laughs> the animation is so adorable. I could sit here and watch that all day. Oh, and there are also collectible trophies now. Really challenging collectible trophies that'll push you to the limits of your gamer senses. Any secret trophies or anything that we see up here? Any secret trophies? Secret trophies? Secret trophies? But we all know why we're really here. It's not for the gameplay innovation or the collectibles. It's for the hidden notes and cryptic clues. Ladies and gentlemen, we have ourselves some lore to decipher. And spoiler alert, Poppy isn't who we thought she was. First, here's what you need to know to understand today's theory. Poppy Playtime Chapter 1 focused on us, the player, returning to an abandoned toy factory in order to save some employees that went missing there 10 years ago. We're told via a mysterious note that we have to find the flower. Several puzzles and one giant Muppet chase later, we find the flower in the form of a giant wall mural of a poppy. Inside is a replica of a house and a doll named Poppy Playtime, locked away inside of a glass case. And of course, we set her free without a second thought because players in video games have never seen a horror movie before. Anyway, chapter 2 picks up immediately afterward. Poppy agrees to help us activate a train that'll help us get out of the factory. So much for wanting to help save those missing employees, but hey, if a creepy talking doll starts offering me ways to not be around the creepy talking doll, I'm gonna take that offer. But of course, things are never quite that easy. Mommy Longlegs, a giant stretchy toy spider, takes Poppy hostage and forces us to play three minigames in her game station in order to unlock each part of the train's code. Eventually, we break out of her games, which causes her to go complete sicko mode and chase us through a narrow escape sequence. Hmm, where have I seen something like that before? In the end, she gets caught in a grinder and her remains are dragged away by a mysterious claw. We rescue Poppy, get on the train, but surprise, surprise, she betrays us, crashing the train and forcing us even deeper into the factory. So, those are the highlights from the chapter, but we're still left with a lot of overarching questions. Who are we? Where are these missing employees we're so concerned about? What's the true nature of the toys, and who's secretly pulling 
pulling the strings behind all of this? Well, I think I have the answers to each and every one of those questions, and the last one is probably the best place to start. As I just talked about, after defeating Mommy, we see her remains get dragged away by a mysterious claw. No, not Burn Trap's claw, but also, yeah, kind of Burn Trap's claw. You see, the hand we see pull Mommy away is very different from all the other designs that we've encountered in the game so far. Most of the toys that we fight are brightly colored, made of plastic or fur, and, you know, look like actual toys. This thing, though, is dark, mechanical, and could poke your eye out. It's like an erector set on steroids. And that's not all. If you zoom in and enhance the image of the claw, you can actually make out that there's organic material mixed in there. Bones and maybe even some veins mixed in with the metallic parts. So yeah, the comparison to spring trap, burn trap, call them whatever you want, it isn't that much of a joke. But what is this biomechanic hybrid doing within the context of Poppy? Well, back in chapter one, we discovered the final VHS tape which cataloged the results of experiment 1006, nicknamed the prototype. Final log in relation, experiment 1006, the prototype. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. A nation in cooperation is evidently within his skill set, as well as the skill set of all other experiments of his type. This, along with a death screen that said Experiment 1006 isn't he wonderful, led us to believe in a previous theory that our big blue boy Huggy Wuggy was the prototype, since, you know, he was kind of the only character that we met in Chapter 1, Occam's Razor and all that. However, take a look at the hand on the TV screen that we see during that VHS recording. Look familiar? We see that hand appear again in yet another VHS tape in Chapter 2. Log code. 08502 in relation experiment 1006 the prototype the prototype seems to possess an unprecedented level of intelligence beyond that of all other test subjects as well as an alarming willingness to commit violence experiment 1170 huggy wuggy remains the optimal outcome due to his sufficient intelligence paired with maximum obedience obviously this outright tells us that huggy isn't experiment 1006 and that it's instead the owner of this mysterious claw so that's what the prototype is, but what makes it so special? Well, during that same VHS tape, we also hear how the prototype takes apart an alarm clock and uses it to make a laser pointer. In short, it's smart and it's able to repurpose things, which would explain Mommy's concern in this moment. What have you done? You make me part of you! She's gonna be reused and repurposed by this entity in order to help the monster escape. Kind of makes you wonder if the veins and bones were how this creature was originally designed, or maybe that's what happened to all the other missing employees. Their bodies were added to the machine. It's interesting, in our last theory we predicted that Mommy Longlegs would be adding the bodies of dead toys to herself in order to become stronger. We were right about the concept, just looks like we were wrong about who it applied to. As for how this thing is gonna wind up looking, anyone remember Sid 
from Toy Story 1? Sounds like we might have found one of his creations. So right now it looks like the prototype 1006 is going to be our overarching villain for the franchise, taking pieces and parts of the other toys, and maybe even pieces and parts of other people, to grow stronger. That being said, one toy that doesn't appear to have been added to the prototype yet is Huggy Wuggy. He may not have appeared explicitly in this chapter, but hints of him are hidden around. When you go into the chapter's water treatment room, if you look carefully, you can see some blue fur that's scattered around the pipes alongside trails of blood. This appears to be the room that Huggy fell through at the end of the last chapter, and it would seem to imply that Huggy picked himself up and went full-on sus mode by venting away, waiting to return until a future chapter. Which honestly makes sense. He can't die yet. He's basically the mascot of the franchise. Who even cares about Poppy at this point? I, I mean, me. I do, because lore, but I feel like I'm definitely in the minority on that one. Speaking of Poppy, let's talk about her, shall we? I mean, it is her name on the title screen, after all. This isn't Kissy Missy playtime or Cat Bee playtime, you know? Well, mere hours after Chapter 2 came out, the fan community did what the fan community gonna do. They dug into the game files. And by doing so, they discovered an early build of this chapter hidden away. And while the game itself is still basically the same, the end is where things get real interesting. Normally, you get on the train and Poppy gives you this sinister speech about how you're not allowed to leave. She betrays us and sends us hurtling deeper into the factory for reasons that are kept pretty darn vague. Terrible things have happened, but I know that whatever I need you to do, you're capable. However, in the cut version of this monologue, we actually get a bit more detail on her motivations. You have so much potential. I know you came to find the ones who had disappeared all those years ago. They're gone. They've been gone for a long time. Terrible things have happened. And I am the cause. Being able to exist as a doll, it has killed so many people. Now, interpreting cut content is always going to be a tricky science. Do you use it? Do you not? How do you use it? Here, I'm only pointing it out because this seems to confirm one of our original theories, that Poppy is the reason all of this is happening. She literally says that because she was able to exist as a doll, people died, which tells us two things. One, that she's been around since the very beginning. She knows about the experimentation that's being done on humans. She's witnessed it all. I was the first. I have seen everything. Yes, yes, FNAF, we hear you. You're very special. You did it first. Secondly, though, it seems to tell us that Poppy isn't who we originally thought. Loyal theorists will remember that last time we predicted that former employee Stella Graber was the person whose body and spirit were used to build Poppy. In chapter one, we found a VHS tape talking about her desire to stay young and her love of children, which all but seemed to scream, make me into an undying doll monster. However, after the clue seeded out in this chapter, we know for a fact that she's no longer a candidate. When we first enter the game station, we're greeted by Stella voice. Hi kids, welcome to the game station. I'm Stella, and we've got three super duper fun games to play. Her name also appears on the bottom of a document outlining how to test children using the various game station modules. Quote, give all reports to Ms. Stella Graber to sort through. So Stella was clearly involved with whatever experimentation was going on at Playtime Co. And since these experiments were started because the living doll Poppy existed in the first place, Stella can't be Poppy. In that same document, we also see references to Mommy Longlegs. Now, if you look closely at the Mommy Longlegs commercial that plays at the top of the chapter, you 
can see that it's dated 1991. Hoppy was meant to be the first living toy developed back in 1950. Therefore, if Stella was alive around the time of Mommy Longlegs, then she couldn't possibly be inside Poppy. So if Poppy isn't Stella, then who is she? Well, early in Chapter 2, we visit Elliot Ludwig's office, founder of Playtime Co. It's here that we learn that he experienced a tragic family loss sometime in the 1960s. In the 1960s, an unfortunate family death had pushed Ludwig down to his lowest. This loss is what spurred him to work harder and build an empire around his toys. Now, it's not actually clear who this family member was. You would suspect his kid, right? Kid dies or is dying and he finds a way to make her into a living toy. Yeah, yeah, I am broken. I will put you back together. Thank you, FNAF. Go and do something else with your life. Make your lore more sensible. Stop trying to butt into other people's narratives, okay? Other people's very similar narratives. <clears throat> Anyway, as I was saying, you would suspect that he's doing this for his kid, right? And that's who Poppy is. It's his daughter. But there's a wrinkle to that, and it's not coming from the game, but rather the game's website. You see, we know via a newspaper article hidden on the About section of Playtime Company's merch website that Elliot's wife divorced him in 1930. This means that if a child came from that relationship, that biological son or daughter would have been in their 20s or 30s when Poppy was created. It seems a bit old, to be honest. The loss could have been a grandchild. That's definitely a possibility. But for me, I think the most likely option was that it was an adopted daughter. In Chapter 1, we see a lot of posters hanging on the walls talking about Playtime Co.'s adoption initiative. What if that program was initially started because Elliot had an adopted child himself, and he wanted to bring that joy to other families, thereby modeling it in those Playtime Company values? And then, when his daughter dies or is suffering, he, you know, has to find a way to put her back together. So, his adopted child dies tragically, and he tries something to revive her, probably by fusing her with Poppy. And it works. Something he does works. She's in the doll, but he's not exactly sure what he did. Might I suggest trying Remnant? Or Aghanim? Sorry. Sorry, now I'm just going out of my way to do it. Anyway, we know that he's unsure based on a note that we find in Elliot's office in Chapter 2. This note talks about Experiment 814, in which they try to bring rats back to life using the poppy flower. My suspicion is that this is because he was somehow able to revive his daughter inside of Poppy, a doll who we're told has the essence of poppy flower built into her hair. This is also why we find Poppy hidden in the glass case. It's so his daughter can be preserved, protected, and also studied. It's because he saw it was possible, and then he went on to repeat it. Which is why he's so happy about his wonderful experiment 1006, the prototype. After nearly 200 additional experiments post poppy flowers and rats, this is where he finally cracks the code. He's brought things to life, but the prototype is too smart. It escapes and doesn't obey orders, sending the factory into chaos. This is why we hear that Huggy Wuggy is actually the perfect creation, because he's smart, but he's also obedient. Experiment 1170, Huggy Wuggy, remains the optimal outcome due to his sufficient intelligence paired with maximum obedience. And that, my friends, is the story of how everything started at Playtime Co. We now know that Elliot Ludwig's adopted daughter is likely the entity inside the Poppy doll, and that our overarching villain for the series is the prototype, the first successful recreation of that technology, of bringing something back to life, a toy that steals and uses the pieces and parts of other things to make itself stronger. But there's still lots more to discover here. Who 
or what is inside the other toys? Are they employees or are they something else? What about the mysterious death screens that we see each time we die? What are they trying to tell us? If people are inside of toys, then what about the prototype? Is it someone important or is it just a random collection of people? And probably the biggest question of all, who are we in relation to all of this? Let's start at the makeup of the monsters. Originally, we suspected that the flesh and blood of former employees was being used to help create the sentient toys that are now chasing us around the factory. I mean, look at all the blood in this place. And usually it's found alongside a broken toy. Plus, as Huggy Wuggy falls into the abyss at the end of chapter one, he leaves blood splatter on all the pipes that he hits on his way down. Combine that with our theory that Stella was inside a poppy and boom, you got yourself a recipe for the most gruesome company health plan ever. However, chapter two seems to be pulling us in a different direction. Once you defeat Mommy Longlegs and get back to the game station to free Poppy, you can find two notes on either side of the control panel. One is about a scientist complaining about the lack of natural light in the lab, which, let me tell you, as someone who literally locks himself in a closet to work on episodes, totally get that. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hashtag relatable. But it's the second note that I want us to pay attention to. It starts off harmless enough. Just a list of instructions for employees working on the game station floor. Quote, start by reporting to the control station. Always keep a minimum distance of 20 yards away from mommy long legs. The train will arrive with the children at 8 a.m. All children will be gathered inside the game station all at once. The order of the games will be musical memory, wacka wuggy, then statues. A series of bridges and doors from a control station should guide you to each game. End quote. I mean, you know, it's all pretty straightforward stuff. But it's the last section where my theorist senses really start to prick up. Quote again, Only one child should ever play a game at a time. Children who are not playing a game will wait in the game station. There's playground equipment to keep them entertained. Record each child's performance as it's relevant to each game. Music memory, composure, memory, pattern recognition. Wacka-wuggy, hand-eye coordination, and reaction times. Statues, agility, strength, and speed. Once the children have left for the day, return to the control station, give all reports to Ms. Stella Graver to sort through. End quote. The children weren't just playing any old games, these games were specifically designed to test children and monitor their skills. And that's not all. When you break out of the statues game, you can actually find two of these reports hidden inside the room for a child named Michaela Hissop. Each proctor goes through and explains how Michaela performed in each task. Quote, she has a good grasp on the concept and decent performance, but Michaela made mistakes on several of the color patterns. In her second attempt, she was making noticeable improvements. Quote again, Michaela is very accurate and fast. Few mistakes were made. You can actually see this improvement Improvement reflected in her scores, going from 331 to 434. However, notice what's written right at the top of the page. Underneath the child's name, the name of the proctor is another category, assigned toy. For Michaela, this was Candy Cat. Now, why would you need to assign a specific toy to each individual child? Unless, of course, you needed that child to have some kind of deep connection with the toy for some kind of supernatural purpose, like, say, turning the child into that toy. Certainly sounds like something that happened in an indie horror game. And look at this, right at the start of the 
chapter, we find this note in Elliot Ludwig's office that talks about his experiments with dead rats and using the poppy flower to try and revive them. According to the document, it doesn't work. However, Elliot leaves us with this parting thought. Quote, perhaps something larger than a rat would yield different results. And suddenly it all begins to fit together. The testing of the kids, assigning them a toy, it's not for their own betterment. It's in order to provide larger subjects for Elliot's experiments. He isn't stuffing his employees into toys to bring them to life. He's using children. Oh, come on. Just when I thought we would get through an episode without a FNAF reference. But that's not all. Because Poppy Playtime saw FNAF's dead kids and said, hold my remnants. Because if stuffing kids wasn't bad enough, these aren't just any children. They're orphans. At the start of Statues, before we even see any of these child testing papers, Mommy gives us a little monologue about why she's trying to kill us. It was always so sad to see the kids grow. They called me Mommy because I was the closest thing they ever had to one. But they come for games and never come back. They called me mommy because I was the closest thing they ever had to one. Uh, all right, let me level with you. First off, I think they called you mommy because, you know, that's literally the name of your toy. We see the commercial at the very beginning of the chapter. You've also spent the entire game talking about yourself in the third person, so none of this should be a shock to you. But you know what? She's also probably right. If this day-glow pink stretch spider is the closest thing the kids have to a mom, then yeah, chances are they're growing up parentless. This also directly aligns with the posters that we see throughout the factory. Post that explicitly talk about Playtime Co.'s adoption program for orphans. In Chapter 2, it says, quote, Playtime Co. harbors a state-of-the-art education program for all orphan children. These children being tested are orphans. That's why, despite there being literally hundreds of experiments, notice that the experiment numbers go from the 800s all the way to the thousands, no missing children's reports are ever filed. I mean, heck, even Freddy's had to close after five. This also applies to a select number of the game's death screens. Nobody is here by choice? Yeah, these kids didn't choose to be here, to be adopted by the company or turned into toys. And I'm sure at this point they're all well aware of the fates that are worse than death like we see in another death screen. I still stand by our first theory on this one. I'm convinced that these death screens are Poppy talking to us. At the end of the chapter, she says that she has plans for us and prevents us from escaping on the train. This perfectly lines up with death screens like, you can die later, this isn't about you, and I still have plans for you. However, chapter 2 introduces a new mechanic into the death screens. You see, while those that I've already mentioned all end with a flash of white, there are others that end with an ominous red screen. One of those red screens is even in a secret code like the one that we had in chapter 1. I guess this is just a thing that they do now. Last time we deciphered the code to give us the phrase, stay, they need help. Fortunately, the new one in chapter 2 uses a few of the same letters. In fact, the first word in this new code is exactly the same as one from the other code, they, followed by an apostrophe and two more letters, the second of which is also an E, so this is very clearly there. The next two words get a little Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now trickier as they contain letters that we haven't seen before, but after a bit of analysis and trial and error, I managed to decipher the whole thing to read, they're just hungry. This, on its own, doesn't really tell us anything new, but when you start to combine it with the other red screen messages, it starts to paint a bigger picture. The prototype has saved us, isn't he wonderful? He is loose. This is an emergency lockdown. Innovation is key, may we forget death. This is no longer Poppy talking to us. She's horrified by the creation of these monsters using human test subjects. She doesn't like what's going on in 
the factory. No, these are the messages of someone else. Someone so obsessed with overcoming death that they can't see past the issue with their own experiments. They're just hungry? That feels like the excuse of one of those parents that believes that their child can't do any wrong. Except, you know, they're talking about a giant human-consuming erector set monster. These messages must be coming from either Elliot himself, the man who after the death of his daughter put his heart and soul into creating his toy empire, or one of the employees who believed in the cause so much that they were willing to sacrifice parentless children to find the solution. But why us? Why do we hear so many people talking in our ears when we die? In fact, why did we feel so compelled to return to the factory in the first place? I know we got ourselves a note saying that missing people were still here, but just not convinced that any minimum wage employee is gonna risk their lives in a factory where people mysteriously went missing 10 years ago. And when the giant Huggy suddenly went missing from the main atrium in the first chapter, yeah, most people are gonna nope straight out of there. Yet here we are facing monster after monster fighting for our lives determined to see this thing through. Why? I've actually been thinking about this since chapter one, but at the time I just didn't have enough to give a definitive answer. Then here we are in chapter two and mommy says this. But you, you worked here. So if anyone deserves to die alone, it's you. How does she know that we worked here unless she recognizes us? We know, thanks to tapes from people like Marcus Brickley, that most employees weren't aware that the factory was creating these giant living toys. I, I took a peek beneath the gate, and some massive bloody thing was dothering about the bloody hallway. Thing? You're sure it wasn't a person? It's no person that's 50 feet long with a thousand legs. Marcus, you're losing me. Maybe you just saw a bunch of people walking by. Look, it wasn't people, alright? I haven't a bloody notion what it was, but I wasn't human. Plus, in front of the emergency exit that you find after falling through the vent, there's a note from Eddie M.N. Ritterman that also confirms this, quote, This project should only be known about by those with the authority at Warrenbach and those with authority at Playtime. So, for Mommy to recognize us as an employee, we need to be someone with the authority to be involved in the experimentation. She's shown to be aware of the scientists throughout the factory thanks to a note that we find in the water treatment area. This note discusses experiment 1222, a.k.a. Mommy Longlegs. And in this note, we learn that she's being hostile to scientists working there. The note ends with, quote, have her transferred to high security maintenance immediately. Conditioning can begin. We also hear about suppression treatments from the VHS tape about 1006. But as we know in indie horror games, conditioning is never a painless process. Let's encourage Baby to cheer up with a controlled shock. I promise, I'm really not trying to make this game sound more and more like FNAF. The stuff just kind of writes itself. If mommy was being conditioned by these people, it would make sense that she feels like we deserve to die alone. I'm not sure I'd be too happy to see my torturer alive again either. So if we're not just some employee at the factory, are we a scientist then? One of the many people working on the experiments? No. And we know this based on this room. Just after you chase mommy and poppy down a giant hole, you wind up in a tube slide. If you turn around, you'll see that this room actually has a number of slides in it. Each one with the name of a high-ranking member of Playtime Co. listed above. We just came out of the slide with the name Ellie. Ludwig above it, who we already know is the creator, founder, and CEO. The other slides have the names Leith Pierre, Eddie MNR, and Stella Graber. We were first introduced to Leith Pierre right at the very beginning of chapter one. Hi, my name is Leith Pierre, and I'm the head of innovation here at the Playtime Co. Toy Factory. We also hear Leith's voice as the person interviewing Marcus. So, Marcus, what happened? You see, I was heading home for the day when my apars realized that I left me bloody wallet in the cafeteria. So I'm running through the lobby, and that's when I see it. 
A mop handle lodged under the innovation wing gate. Now, what Marcus said there might seem insignificant, but it's not. It's Jacksepticeye. Of course, he's gonna be important for the lore. Before jumping into the hole after Mommy and Poppy, if you look around, you can actually see five corridors that lead to different wings of the factory, like the game station and innovation. Five slides, five different wings to the factory. So if this is truly a center point leading to all the different wings, and all the slides lead from high-ranking members' offices, it would stand to reason that each name is associated with a different wing of the factory. For example, one of the wings is labeled Play Place, which sounds very similar to where Chapter 3 has taken place, Play Care. We know that Stella is someone with authority at Playtime as she was in charge of sorting through all the orphan kids' test scores, and is therefore the one that would decide which kids move forward on the train headed to the next stop, Play Care, where she could then monitor and begin the experimentation process. And, as Stella's voice is heard in the game station, it would lead me to suspect that Stella's in charge of all play elements of the facility, so the Play Place would likely come under her control. This leaves us with two wings left, research and production. Eddie MNR is a bit hard to pinpoint as we've only ever had one letter from him, but his note does refer to the creation of the lab that these experiments are taking place in. As such, it makes the most sense for him to be the head of research, or some similar sort of title, which leaves us then with the production wing. And you see, this is where we come in. You see, there are four slides with names that we've already mentioned, but there is one more in the right-hand corner hidden in shadow. I suspect that this one is our slide. Someone who is high enough at the company to be aware of the living poise. Someone important enough for mommy to recognize. Someone with an elite enough title that they got their own tube slide. We are the head of production. We're the ones putting these toys together, using the parts of the children from the game station. And when the toys malfunctioned and needed conditioning, they'd be sent right back to production for us to fix the faulty product. That is why we're here. It's the only wing of the factory that's left unaccounted for. It explains our role in the narrative. It explains why mommy recognizes us and why we're back. To either atone for our sins or to burn the entire place down so no one ever finds out what we did here. But that's not the end of it though. If I'm right and this is meant to be our slide, we've actually been given a name. I mentioned that the fifth slide has no name above it, but the letters for the sign do seem to be present just on the floor. J-A-H-Y-E-O-N-B-A-I-M. Now, names are hard. They're not normal words. Technically, anything can be a name, and you certainly can't just plug it into a word unscrambler to solve it for you. The team and I spent a few hours trying various combinations of letters, and I spent even longer going through both chapters of the game trying to find some kind of a clue to point me in the right direction. Some initials, or a document with only a first or last name attached, but so far, nothing. I did come up with a couple of possibilities, though. Things like Benjamin Yo, Benjamin Hoey, or J. Bohemian. Can't say that they're anything definitive. However, there was one that stood out from the rest. One that seemed to fit with the world of this game, and with the other names of characters. Ladies and gentlemen, I predict that our character's name is... Drumroll, please! Jamie B. Honey. Feels like it fits into a toy factory, doesn't it? We are Jamie B. Honey, the head of production, returning to the factory to try and undo all the wrongs that he and his co-workers committed all those years ago. Or, you know, we're trying to make sure that everything stays buried. We were vital to the production of these living toys, turning them from regular plastic and fur into the hellish nightmares that we see. And the future chapters are only going to reveal more monsters. And maybe it'll confirm the fact that in this story, the humans were the real monsters all along. But hey, that's just a theory. A game theory. Thanks for watching.